Now, if you've been tuning in over the last few weeks, you will know that we've been thinking about the Hebrew word hesed, which describes for us the astonishing kindness of God. We started at the beginning uh, by hearing God himself speaking to us in Exodus chapter 34, telling Moses that his kindness and love is vast, but that that doesn't mean that he's weak or soft. And then we've been trying to trace how these foundational words from God have, what, what, what these words have meant to his precious people uh, as we try to trace that through history. So far, we've seen that God's astonishing kindness is our invitation to pray. His astonishing kindness is also the theme of our song. And today, I want to introduce the idea that God's astonishing kindness is also our confidence as we wait. Our confidence as we wait. The fact that God is kind means that God's people love to pray, they love to sing, and they're also able to wait, to endure. They're a patient people. And today, hopefully, we'll try to see how it is the astonishing kindness of God that enables us to wait with confidence even when things are hard like they are now. I, I, I didn't prepare this talk in relation to coronavirus, but I think it's quite appropriate. <laughs> so, but that's where we've landed today. We're all fed up, aren't we? <laughs> Let's, um, first of all, we'll try and open this up under four headings. First of all, I just want to underline very briefly the great importance of patience. Christian believers who live patiently trust God's timing. And therefore, they, they don't try to manipulate outcomes. They tend not to be restless or in a hurry all the time because they've learned how to live with things being incomplete rather than perfect. They also have the courage to live differently, to stand out from the crowd, if you like. And so they don't expect or demand instant gratification, especially when it comes to money or sex or power. Patient people are not violent. It's actually impatience that makes us violent. But the patient have learned not to retaliate when they're hurting, partly because they know that violence doesn't bring lasting change, and partly because they know that they can trust God to vindicate them in the end. People who are patient also never tend to force other people to believe things or say things or do things that they don't want to do. They're generous in giving other people 
space and freedom. This isn't to say that we don't share what we know of Jesus with others. Jesus commanded his followers to do that. But the way we do it should never be rude or aggressive or coercive. I don't think we can overestimate the importance of the virtue of patience. And I'm suggesting that it is the astonishing kindness of God that underpins our praying, our singing, and our waiting. When things are hard, we can entrust our future to God. We can trust the wisdom of his timing. We can play the long game. We can hold on to him when we're hurting. And all of these things we can do because he is kind. Let's secondly think about this rather grim heading, the harsh reality of life. I, I think you know this. I hope you know this. The Bible is very realistic about what our lives are like. There are times when God's promises do not look like they're being fulfilled. There are times when we hurt and grieve, feel anxious or confused. Last week we were thinking about a very happy day, a day of joyful, exuberant celebration. We were in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. But it might encourage you to know that three of the main characters that we met last week who were part of leading the great procession of joyful praise as the ark came back to Jerusalem. Three of them who helped to lead the singing and the music on that day all wrote psalms that were much darker. We don't need to turn to them. We're just going to touch on these briefly. But I want to highlight that the guys who led the worship last week also experienced days of real anguish. First of all, the character Asaph, he was the guy who led the procession. He sung the main song that David wrote for him. But he also wrote Psalm 73, amongst others, in which he describes how he almost gave up in despair. When Asaph saw the prosperity of the arrogant and good people suffering, it grieved him. It, it actually began to make him feel jealous and he developed a kind of FOMO. Do you know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. He thought to himself, why am I trying so hard to keep myself pure when everybody else seems so carefree? They ignore God and they seem to prosper. The apparent injustice that he saw in the world, 
It began to eat him up inside. He couldn't figure it out. It made him bitter. And Asaph found himself leading the worship on the weekend while feeling broken and disturbed during the rest of the week. How about that? Why do I bother? There's a couple of other characters in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Heman. I want to say Heman. The masters of the universe. Heman and Jeduthun were also there on that happy day. Some people think these two were actually brothers. And both of them were given the job of singing the little jingle that we looked at last week. Their job was also to supervise the trumpets and the cymbals. It made me think that growing up in their house must have been a nightmare as they practiced their instruments. Um, trumpets and cymbals, can you not pick something a little bit quieter? Um, anyway, Heman, having been there on that day, also wrote Psalm 88, which seems to have been written in a state of unrelenting despair. One commentator calls Psalm 88 a wintry landscape of unrelieved bleakness. And there's a story behind that comment that moved me this week. Martin Marty, what a wonderful name, was a professor in a, in a Christian seminary in the States. He was married to his wife, Elsa, for over 30 years before she died of cancer in 1981. And a couple of years later, he wrote a book entitled A Cry of Absence. And in this book, he explains how he and his wife would read a psalm each night at midnight to coincide with her, him giving her his her medication, chemo medication. And they agreed that she would read the odd-numbered psalms and he would read, alternately, the even-numbered psalms. And when he got to Psalm 88, he skipped one. He felt it was so bleak that she wouldn't be able to bear it. In this psalm, Heman expresses being utterly overwhelmed by illness and loneliness and his wife Elsa told him off and said I need this kind of psalm the most you may know that many of the psalms do express something of despair but often they end up hopeful Heman's contribution in Psalm 88 is unique in the book of Psalms because it just ends poignantly with the line, this is in the Bible, the darkness is my closest friend. There seems to be no hope at all. And it made me think this week, in fact, that this psalm, that there's, there's, there's very little to separate this psalm from atheistic poetry except two words. And those two words are, O oh Lord. And sometimes life is so hard that that is all 
a believing heart can muster. Oh, Lord. This wasn't meant to be in the script. His brother, Jejethan, was apparently also known as Ethan. Maybe that was a clan name. And he actually wrote the next psalm, Psalm 89. And he starts by saying, I will sing of the Lord's great love. The word is hesed, forever. After all, that was his job. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 41, David gave them the job to sing this jingle. And Ethan then spends 37 verses rejoicing at God's promises of covenant hesed to King David. But in verse 38, the tone begins to change as Ethan then laments the fact that God seems to have forgotten all about David. David's reign ended on a downer rather than with a bang. The kingdom ended up being divided later and the rest of Psalm 89 is very dark as he grapples with the fact that God's current actions appear to be the reverse of his promises. My point is that all of these three guys are worship leaders. But there's a rawness and an honesty about all these other psalms that reflect how hard life can sometimes be for all of us. Let's dig into this a little more generally. I want to talk thirdly about the beautiful realism of the psalms. I came across uh, very recently a very interesting book by a Christian author I like a lot called Walter Brueggemann. And the reason I found it, actually, was because he talks about the way the Psalms express something of real life, as we've been describing, and he actually calls it a crisis of hazard. That's Brueggemann's description. Many of the Psalms are wrestling with the fact that God is kind and life is hard. Crisis of Hesed. Let me try and spell out his thinking. Um, and we've, we've got some slides here to try and build this up. That guy yesterday. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Um, we're going to do that now. <laughs> Hopefully this will work. There are 150 psalms in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And Brueggemann suggests that even the way they're compiled is important. Psalm 1 basically teaches that you'll be happy if you're obedient to God. The secret to a stable, fruitful, enduring life is loving God with all your heart and following his ways. The last psalm, 150, is a song of unfettered joy and worship with not a hint of trouble or pain. So, Brueggemann says, the movement in the psalms as, of a, as a whole, excuse my wonky orange line here, is from duty to delight. And there's actually a good lesson in this. Only those who are truly obedient to God can really worship him and enjoy him with all their hearts. None of us 
can really claim to be worshipping him if we're knowingly disobeying him. Obedience comes before delight here. So the bookends of Psalm 1 and Psalm 50, they do make sense and they're true and they're good. This was the framework, it seems, that God gave to his believing people in the Old Testament. Duty, delight. The great problem is that in between these two poles, there's this reality of what we might call real life, isn't there? Psalm 1 is true, and Psalm 150 is true. But in the real world, obedience to God often doesn't lead to immediate happiness and success. It may, ask, it may actually cost you a great deal. And unless we're in some kind of denial... Life is not always full of unfettered joy. In the real world, there are tears because life is complicated and messy and painful and sometimes tragic. Brueggemann suggests that to negotiate this Pacific Ocean of reality requires two things. On the one hand, it requires honesty about suffering. And on the other hand, it requires gratitude for hope. And that is exactly what we find when we go into and through the Psalms. As we've seen, some Psalms express honestly overwhelming grief, honest rage, deep lament. And there are also many others that express gratitude and hope and confidence. Often, many of the Psalms seem to mingle these two things in, in, in one. And through all of this, woven through all of the Psalms, is this idea of waiting and trusting and enduring. This kind of honesty and hope are only possible because God is astonishingly kind. Last of all, come with me and we'll, we've touched on some darker psalms. Let's uh, go now to Psalm 103 that Nick so hopefully read for us earlier. I want to take you to Psalm 103 partly because it mentions Hesed four times. But do you remember when we started in Exodus chapter 34 and we heard God describing himself, this psalm is actually built on that very foundation. Look with me at verse 7 where the psalmist, David, says, God made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You recognize those truths? Exodus 34, this psalm is a psalm celebrating God's astonishing kindness. It's good to notice, first of all, how this psalm begins. Do you ever talk to yourself? 
This song begins, Praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalmist is basically talking to himself and telling himself what to do. Oh my, he's kind of grabbing hold of himself. Oh my soul. Praise the Lord. Do it. He's not passive. In the face of real life, he takes himself in hand. And we might say that rather than listening to his inner self, he talks to his inner self. He begins by having a little word with himself. And it's, it's so much more of this, isn't it, than just having a little word with himself in the corner. This is not a pep talk. What, what he's actually doing is reminding himself who God is, what God is like, and what God has done for him. That's essentially his approach here. Oh, my soul, don't forget all his benefits. Now, our new best friend, Walter Brueggemann, suggests that there are three things that we humans struggle deeply with. And he categorized them, these three things, as guilt, death, and what he calls our finitude. Um, by that, he means the fact that we're small. <laughs> And that we're not in control, that we have limitations, that we often don't know the answers that we wish we did. In Psalm 103, it is the kindness of God that addresses these three troubling realities of guilt, frailty and death. The first thing the psalmist calls to mind here is than complete forgiveness for our guilt. Here is a God who is astonishingly kind in forgiving all of our sins. I call this complete forgiveness because in verse 3 it does say all and not some all our sins but the other reason is that later on in verses 11 and 12 the psalmist here uses the most extreme dimensions that he can think of first of all he talks about God's love the word there is hesed in verse 11 so great is his love he talks about the greatness of God's love and the, the way he describes it is to talk about the height of the sky. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his hazard for those who fear him. And then he goes on in verse 12 to go this way he's gone this way now he goes this way if we went as far as we could to the west God takes our sins and goes as far as he can to the east that, that's his way of saying 
you, you, you can't think of anything further than that. One goes that way, one goes that way. You can't express complete forgiveness any more emphatically than that. And is this not something sweet to know? Whatever happens around us or to us, if we are trusting in the guilt-removing sin-destroying death of Jesus, we will never ultimately be condemned. This means God is for you, not against you. If your circumstances are hard, do not make the mistake of viewing them as God's response to some residual guilt in you. This is a God who has taken away your sins, all of them. And of course, this is our deepest need, isn't it? Underneath all of our other complex needs, this, our, our guilt is the biggest need. If every problem in our life was solved somehow but we were still guilty before God there'd be no true peace in that but the converse is true too that if all our sins are forgiven and we are right with God then every other issue can and will also ultimately be resolved Secondly, God has a sympathetic tenderness for our frailty. Verse 13 and 14 uh, speak of this. These verses are wonderful. Drink them in deeply. The psalmist says, as a father has compassion on his children... So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. The word fear here is not terror, but respect, reverence for God's awesome majesty and beauty and goodness. Do you know that, as far as I'm aware, no other religion speaks of God as a father? We have no difficulty imagining God as a ruler. But he is first and foremost a compassionate father. And look at these words here, verse 14. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Do you get the tenderness and the sympathy in those words? God tenderly sympathises with our frail humanity. We are weak and finite, but we have a God who is sympathetic rather than irritable. 
This is one of the reasons that God can be pleased with our sincere but imperfect obedience. God is not like a perfectionist father who is always prone to constantly criticising. Imagine asking a young child to go and make their bed. We, we've done this a few times. And then you go into the room, and I don't know, they're like five years old or something, and they do their best to please you. Imagine going into their room and pointing out the corners not being straight. Or you should have ironed the duvet first before you did it. Or the pillows are a bit wonky. You would rather be thrilled at their efforts to please you. God is perfectly holy and yet he loves his children with the compassion of a father. Some of you struggle with limitations. But even when you don't know the answers you wish you did, not only can you trust that God does know, but you can rest in the comforting knowledge that he understands and sympathises with you in your frailty. Life is not a competition to prove ourselves to God or anyone else. And thirdly and lastly, God in his great love has achieved ultimate victory over our death. Verse 15 and 17 speak about the transience of life, don't they? We humans are compared here to grass or to a fragile flower that blossoms and then it withers and is gone. We touched on this in our series in Ecclesiastes last year, didn't we? But verse 17 here expresses something absolutely mind-blowing. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love, the word there again is hesed. The Lord's hesed is with those who fear him. From everlasting to everlasting, I struggle to get my head around this. His love for you had no beginning. It is more ancient than Gandalf. It stretches in, in the eternity of God's heart. Light years in this direction. But it will also have no end. And this is personal, deeply personal. This means that God knew you before you were born. This means that he has had his, his eye on you. There's too many H's in that sentence. Every one of your waking moments. It means that he will never abandon you or forsake you. 
This means that our death cannot be the end. It cannot be the end for his beloved people. There is a resurrection from everlasting to everlasting. For his precious people, this will, death will not be a call to face God's judgment. It will be the dawn of a glorious new day. This is what verse 4 means in this psalm. Praise the Lord, O my soul, who redeems your life from the pit. The grave cannot greedily swallow you up if you are his. Because he loves you, he saves you from death and hell. And, and here's the thing, isn't it? This, this, is, this is Bible logic. If God conquers our ultimate death, how will he not also conquer and redeem all our other disappointments? Just look at the end of verse 4. Here is a God who crowns you with love and compassion. The word there again is chesed. The psalmist here is talking to himself. He crowns you. He crowns you. Here is a God who crowns you with astonishing kindness we're done let me leave you with this it is tempting isn't it it's tempting when we think about human suffering to get quickly into the why question but the burden of scripture never really obsesses over trying to answer the why question instead it, it acknowledges honestly the dark realities of human suffering but reassures us of the bedrock of God's astonishing kindness in our sins, in our frailty and even in an ultimate future cosmic sense we can trust him. The astonishing kindness of God means that we can trust him and wait patiently even as we sometimes grow. Will you do that? Will you trust him? One of those music leaders, Asaph, that we were speaking about earlier, who so very nearly lost his footing, he did come through his trauma and bitterness. And this is what he could say at the end of Psalm 73. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven 
but you. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May it be so for all of you, all of us, even in these difficult days.